Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode five. Kurt Cobain once said that the only way he would wear a tie-dyed t-shirt would be if it were soaked in the blood of Jerry Garcia. That's weird. It's weirdly ironic because the things that Kurt Cobain wore instead of tie-dyed t-shirts became the uniform for counterculture in his era. It became the grunge outfit. And it was also shocking to me when I discovered that Cobain hated hippies. I always thought that the grunge rockers were trying in some way to bring back that countercultural idea that hippies had presented. But they weren't. Cobain hated hippies. He called them hypocrites. And in his mind, they had sold out. And the idea of selling out was repugnant to him. Which is strange, because... This is a man who sold millions of records, and it may have led to a suicide. The horrible feeling he had looking upon himself and thinking, am I a sellout, may have contributed to that. So what is selling out? What does that phrase mean? Do you sell out when you vote for the wrong party, or when you get an 8-to-5 job, or when you start buying Celine Dion albums, or when you genuinely enjoy reality television? And what is the opposite of selling out? I guess in one sense it means that you are uh, true to the counterculture. You're true to your sensibilities that say, I am not mainstream. I am not a person who purchases, listens to, enjoys things that come from the mainstream, and that I don't produce things that belong in the mainstream. It's not just that, though. It's not just uh, the idea that selling out is is uh, betraying your counterculture. It's also the idea that if you're an artist and you start using your art to sell, say, Tied with Bleach, then you've become a sellout, that you are no longer allowed to um, walk amongst real artists who are um, in it for the sake of the art itself. This is something that Comedian Bill Hicks would harp on all the time. Here's a clip of him going through that. Let me tell you something right now, and you can print this in stone, and don't you ever forget it. Any, any performer that ever sells a product on television is for now and all eternity removed from the artistic world. Bill Hicks goes on to say in that bit that it doesn't matter if you can produce Mona Lisa quality art out of your anus on command. You shill for the corporation one time, it's over. It's over. You're no longer an artist. You are 
advertising. But what if you're not shilling a product? What if you're just producing, you're making something that people love, a lot of people love? Does that make you a sellout? What if you enjoy things that other people consider mainstream? You like Titanic, the movie. You enjoy the music of Justin Bieber. What if you work for, quote, unquote, the man, and you enjoy that? You like your job. You enjoy wearing a suit every day, and uh, it's not something you consider a big deal. Does that make you a sellout? I mean, how do you, as a modern person, express your individuality in the modern era without selling out, whatever that means? There's a certain kind of movie that, uh, I know I love these movies, and uh, I think they appeal to a very specific period of time in your life, especially if you're a person who grew up in the United States. Um, and they're always about waking up from the dream of the consumerist, corporatized, McDonaldized, 1984, brave new world, drudgery, and suddenly seeing the world for what it really is, the uh, that it's uh, an illusion, and that there's a really real world underneath all that, and if you make the right choices, you can participate in it. I think that's part of what drives a lot of, uh, of behavior is that sense that you need to find the real, the authentic. That's why I love, I love listening to interviews with Christian Lander, uh, who wrote stuff white people like, because he really pinpointed something that, uh, is true about many modern people. And that is there's a competition for status and it's a primate thing. Primates compete for status many animals, social animals compete for a status in one way or another, because it's important to know where you stand in the social hierarchy. But with, uh, there's not a lot of opportunity for, to compete for status anymore, the way there used to be. And they're not so set social classes in a lot of ways, like there used to be at least, uh, where I live. So competing for status as Christian Lander puts it is sort of a never ending contest to establish superiority through, um, clever consumption and through consuming and displaying that you have found the authentic and that it's real and the more real and authentic it can be, whether it's an experience or a product, the more likely to be that you will win. I am David McRaney. I am your host. And on each episode of the you are not so smart podcast, we celebrate self delusion one topic at a time. And in this episode, we're going to discuss the idea of selling out. In the United States, selling out is a big idea. I mean, it's something that many artists will think about through their career, especially stand-up comedians. Bill Hicks' condemnation of any artist who would make money off of endorsements still lingers in the minds of a lot of stand-ups. David Cross and Patton Oswalt notoriously traded words over the Chipmunks movies that Cross performed voiceovers for. And they mentioned Bill Hicks in that argument. I'll have a link for it on the website if you want to see their uh, the words that they traded. I remember George Carlin did commercials for a phone service and he explained in his act that if this caused cognitive dissonance for his audience, they would just have to get over it. And in his autobiography, he revealed that he was drowning in tax debt when he did those ads, which is crazy to me. It's interesting because whenever you go to the YouTube clip of Carlin doing that commercial, which don't, but if you go to it, the first comment mentions Bill Hicks. Because in that famous bit, he allowed for one exception, one loophole. And that was, if you owe a lot of money to the IRS, you can 
shill for a little while to uh, get them off your back, which is what Willie Nelson was doing at the time that he performed that bit. And in the YouTube comments, they uh, say that George Carlin deserves the same free pass. So this idea of selling out, whether it's coming from Bill Hicks or Kurt Cobain or the Sex Pistols, it helps you, the consumer, make a decision on who you want to align yourself with and whose products you want to buy, which is really what we're going to talk about today with Andrew Potter, who is the author and co-author of two books that explore the topics of mainstream versus counterculture and the concept of authenticity in relation to personal identity. Here is the misconception According to Mr. Potter, every counterculture, every era has one, right? And every counterculture has pretty much the same uh, mission. Its job is to be real. Its job is to be authentic. Beatniks, punk, grunge, metal, goth, hipsters, hippies. Uh, everybody is saying that the mainstream is where all the sellouts operate and in the counterculture, that's where the real stuff is at. That's where the authentic stuff is at. But you have to ask yourself, how does that stuff become popular in the first place? How did something get into the mainstream? And the way it gets there, according to Potter and his co-author Heath, is that there's this weird paradox going on. There's this pump. And it works like this, okay? Imagine this scenario. Let's say there's this band that only you and a couple people have heard about. And you love them. You love them so much. And you, you, you tell everyone, you got to come see this band. And you go, and uh, each time you come to see them, there are uh, more and more people there. And they build up this fan base. And they eventually have enough fans that they make an album. Uh, they get a record producer who sees them perform and says, Wow, these guys, you've got the stuff. And they sell enough albums to be able to quit their jobs. And then... They go on tour and they do what they love. They keep making the thing that they love and they're true to it. And they become so huge and their fan base gets so big that they end up getting a national record contract with a major label. They get on the radio and they end up on Conan O'Brien and then they end up opening for a national mainstream act and then they are mainstream, right? And what happens when your favorite thing becomes mainstream a lot of times the response is well they've sold out so now they get abandoned and people leave the surface and deep dive back down and start the whole thing over again and according to Joseph Heath and Andrew Potter that is the pump of capitalism that is the pump of consumerism uh the first adopters heaving things up to the top, causing it to become mainstream, abandoning it when everybody else likes it, and then going back down and pumping it up again. Actually, Potter and Heath go further than that. They say that there is no counterculture. There is no mainstream, or at least there's no difference between the two things. That there is no man, and that you're not really rebelling against anything because it's all part of the same system, and the system loves rebellion. It loves angst because there are lots of products you can sell to people who are experiencing that. And it's a predictable experience that people go through when they start to build their identity. And the marketplace gets better and better at selling that rebellion back to people because I can tell you, I spent a lot of time in the deep South and there are plenty of hipsters here and they are indiscernible from any other hipster you might meet across this country and they have to buy their clothes somewhere. 
Okay, so we're going to talk about all of this stuff today with our guest, Andrew Potter, who is the author of The Authenticity Hoax, and also he co-wrote with Joseph Heath, The Rebel Cell, sometimes called Nation of Rebels, depending on what country you're in when you're buying that book off of Amazon, which I recommend you get both of these books. They really will open your eyes and sort of tilt your uh, worldview in many ways, and especially if you're like uh, just going into college. These are books you should read. Uh, he is the currently the managing editor at the Ottawa Citizen. He's got a PhD in philosophy from the University of Ontario. He was a professor of philosophy at Trent University in Ontario. He's a was a public affairs columnist for McLean's Magazine, and until recently was the features editor at Canadian Business Magazine. He's very smart, very learned man. And uh, let's let's pick. A- this show is sponsored by BetterHelp, and I'm very proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. I was using BetterHelp before they became a sponsor, and I was very excited to learn that they wanted to sponsor this program. I have recommended BetterHelp to people. I know people right now who I've recently onboarded. I had a friend who had a really difficult medical event and was experiencing a completely new range of anxieties and feelings and concerns. And I recommended therapy. I'd never gone to therapy before. And this helped. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. And the question is, time for what? If our time was unlimited, how would you use it? And the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what is that special thing? What is important to you? What is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and you will get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do that several times and really lock in with a therapist that is able to generate with you that dynamic that's so important. I believe you should be in therapy. I believe everyone should be in therapy for a period of time at least in their lives to sort this out. What's important to you? How do you make it work? And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S. So you want to make better decisions and you have a business. You have a business and you want to make better decisions in that business. You need some sort of key performance indicators, a system for measuring what you're up to, what you're doing, measurable values that demonstrate how effectively your company is achieving your key business objectives. That's a KPI. And I have a recommendation for you. It's called NetSuite. You should be using NetSuite. Here's here's why. So your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. Every business that's doing well, even if it's just starting to kind of do well, it'll start to form some fissures here and there. Things you used to do in a day will start taking a week, and you'll have all sorts of manual processes that 
just there's too many. You can't get to everything. And you don't have one source of truth to make sense of it all, to make those better decisions. If that's you, you should know about three numbers. These are three numbers you should know. 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. That's a big number, 37,000. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streaming accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. 25? 25 years? 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. You don't want some sort of operation or app that's just made for whoever comes along. No, you get a customized solution for creating those KPIs that you need. One efficient system with one source of truth made for one business, your business. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. When you have everything you need in one place, all these biases, all these fallacies that I talk about on this program, it's an incredible way to apply everything you learn about making better decisions by having one source from which to pull your evidence, your information. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance for nothing, absolutely free. You just go to netsuite.com slash not so smart. You get it for free. That's netsuite.com slash not so smart to get your own KPI checklist. One more time, netsuite.com slash not so smart. Brain. Andrew, for a moment, let's discuss the idea of selling out. What is it that people are expressing when they throw around that term? Um, yeah, selling out. Selling out uh, tends to be uh, the idea that, uh, you know, in its most sort of everyday sense, the idea that you had a set of principles uh, or values that you adhered to um, about uh, the meaning of life or the, uh, the meaning of work, the meaning of family or what have you. And uh, you have uh, straightforwardly sold them. You have you have um, you have given up those principles in exchange for comfort, material wealth, a job, or anything like that. So uh, the idea of selling out is uh, you know one of the um, the ongoing and eternal tropes of of uh, North American life. And what, why do you think it is that we, especially young people, but also artists, it becomes one of those things. It becomes a real sticking point. Why is it? Why are we so uh, focused on it? Uh, it's, it's a good question. I, I mean, part of me thinks that it's, it's um, part of a specific historical moment uh, that sort of arose in our culture sort of after the war, into the 60s and so on. Um, and so, so for a long time, I believed that, that selling out was, was simply 
uh, a cultural tick we had acquired sort of as a result of the counterculture that uh, once upon a time, uh, sort of pre-counterculture, say the 50s and so on, you go back to Mad Men, and people had the idea that um, entering into adult society was uh, a virtue, was something to look forward to, the idea that you give up the, 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 the japes and, and, and uh, trickeries of, of youth and you, you become a man or you become a, a woman and, and you, you sort of enter into more sophisticated society. And then uh, w- what happened um, with, with the birth and, uh, of the counterculture and the almost thoroughgoing uh, adoption of countercultural values by the culture as a whole, you had this uh, basically celebration of youth values. And uh, what are the celebrations? What are youth values? Well, you, you don't work, you don't get a mortgage, you don't buy a car, you don't have a job, and so on. <laughs> And and so uh, so to a certain extent, the, the the reason why selling out in our culture is so uh, endemic as a as a as a, as a term of um, you know disgust or, or degradation is largely I think because we have become uh, thoroughly countercultural in our values. We've adopted the, the, the our culture is a countercultural culture in that sense. Um, so so I think that's the the most proximate reason for it. Well, you, you write a lot about this in, in both uh, both your books, and you, in your most recent book, you talk about how we have this sense that every element of the human experience is sort of being sold back to us, and if something is not new or fresh or untainted, it will soon be. It will be swiftly turned into a product once corporations learn there's a market for that thing. But you you say that that um, the way you write about that would it is that a genuine and accurate way of seeing things? Um. Yes and no. I mean, I guess um, there are a few things at work here. One is um, what, when you talk about selling out, people tend to talk about what you've, what you've sold out or given up or what has been co-opted. Co-opting, I mean, you, you can look at there's a flip side of selling out is co-optation. If selling out is um, an individual has sort of traded their, uh, their values for, for money, basically, right? Um, co-optation is the flip side. It's that um, the money has come along and basically exploited uh, deeper principles or values and uh, and sold it back to the masses, right? And so, so selling out and, and co-optation are flip sides of the same coin. Um, the question, I think, that always needs to be asked uh, whenever people talk about selling out or something being co-opted is, you know, what are those values that are supposedly having been sold out or co-opted? And, you know, were they genuine values? And were they uh, values worth having and, and worth keeping and, and so on? And ask yourself, why... Uh, the introduction or the um, the introduction of, of of money into the exchange, why the cash nexus somehow undermines those, and what I end up arguing, uh, Joe Heath and I in the Rebel Cell and uh, myself later in the Authenticity Hoax, is that a lot of what sort of we think are genuine values is actually just a, a disguised form of status seeking, mm-hmm. and the reason why. Uh, we tend to react when when corporations get involved, when they tend to get sold, is because when things are available in the mass market, it undermines uh, the, the, the the sort of status um, uh, cachet of a lot of objects or experiences or products and so on. And so, so I think that um, a lot of what, what we think is we can sort of talk about specifics to sort of you know give this a bit of grounding. But I think a lot of what, what we think of as values that are being bought or sold is actually just simply uh, a loss uh, a loss of status. So, uh, and I'm going to get into status in just a second. But um, 
I think it would be we should go ahead and lay down the ground of uh, the uh, framework for authenticity. And mm-hmm. in your book, you say that there really is no such thing as authenticity. So, what do you mean by that? Right. Uh, yeah. I mean that's that's kind of a bit of a sort of a hyperbolic way of putting the point. Um, it, what what I argue is that. Um, in the last five, four, five, six years, um, authenticity has become this almost dominant uh, cultural um, um, uh, reaching point. We, we, the, the search for the authentic or, or uh, authenticity has become one of the most dominant um, spiritual, moral, and consumerist quests of our time. And uh, one of the things that, that struck me is that uh, authenticity is one of those words that um, isn't really self-explanatory. That is, to say something is, is authentic only makes sense when you, when you contrast it and, and look at what it's being contrasted with. So, um, because in the most sort of um, you know, elementary way, everything is authentic. Everything just is what it is. And so, and that's sort of like a, you know, a cheap sort of philosophy 101 way of getting at the point, which is that uh, you can only understand what people mean when they say this is authentic and this is not by understanding what they're contrasting it with. If this is authentic, what does it mean for something to be inauthentic? And uh, what I argue is that the jargon of authenticity, that is the, the various uh, ways and areas and, and sort of platforms in which authenticity um, gets articulated, um, largely comes out in reaction to uh, the various forms of, um, or the various manifestations of, of modern society. So secularism, uh, the, the growth of the liberal state, the growth of the market economy, and the, the steady expansion of technology. And all of those things tend to be uh, inauthentic or uh, the realm of inauthenticity. And so we, we look for the authentic uh, in things that are in somehow in reaction to that, in reaction to technology, in reaction to the various aspects of the modern world. Um, and so why do I say there's no such thing as authenticity? Well, what I mean is that, um, is that to the extent to which authenticity is, uh, manifests itself in, in various ways that are um, opposed to the modern world, um, what you have are um, consumer goods or experiences or, or emotions and so on that um, are basically um, themselves, again, a, form of, uh, a disguised form of status-seeking. That is to say, um, all the various ways in which you can be opposed to modernity, uh, anti-technological and so on, um, are uh, the admit of degrees and admit of various forms of one-upmanship and, and so on. And so, you know, I'm kind of, to, to push it, you know, a bit further to say that, that authentic, authenticity is in a lot of ways the successor value to cool in our society. And to say that, that, that authenticity does not exist is to sort of say it the same way that cool doesn't exist. That is, it only stands as against something else and not as something freestanding, free-floating and independently valuable. So um, would I be correct in thinking that uh, the way you see it is authenticity, cool, these are things that are just uh, – these are ways that we – the people conspicuously consume things. They say this is why I bought this thing or I am uh, I own this thing and I'm displaying it and that helps me gain status in my peer group. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's right. I mean um, to the extent to which cool was always about uh, – I mean what I, what I uh, try and do is show how uh, the, the, the trajectory of um, consumption in uh, North American life over the last, say, 100, 150 years um, has gone through a number of shifts. 
And we're all familiar with the term conspicuous consumption, which uh, we all think about as, uh, you know, we, we think about the 50s kind of standard version where you've got a big house, you've got a big, uh, big lawn, you might have a big car. And so you show uh, how well you're doing and you show your status by, you know, it's how much stuff you have. And uh, that's the sort of standard Mad Men 1950s view we have of conspicuous consumption. And in reaction to that value, a lot of people adopted the politics of cool. That's the post-countercultural idea that um, you are uh, a rebel, a nonconformist, uh, the kind of person who is into thing, all things that are alternative or edgy or hip or cool and so on. And, but one of the things that uh, I try and point out is that cool itself is just another form of status seeking. That is to say, uh, showing how your uh, a nonconformist uh, itself uh, admits of degrees in the same way having a big house admits of degrees, or having a big car admits of degrees. You can always one-up someone by being you know, further out there than somebody else. Um, and then, so, and then the next step, I argue, is that you know the politics of cool sort of held sway from the late 1960s till about the middle of the last decade, and then after that, uh, people sort of stopped paying attention to cool. I think cool sort of fell off as uh, you know the dominant cultural value for a number of reasons, and people started talking much more about authenticity. And at the heart of of, of, the, of the, the the desire for authenticity is this this value that says, you know, I might have a big house, I might have a car, I might have a good job, and so on, but I'm not really wedded to any of it. Um, I'm my my values are much deeper than this, much more much more real, much more ecological, much more organic. And uh, and so what you have is this sort of this hop skip from you know uh, conspicuous consumption to conspicuous rebellion to now basically being conspicuously authentic. So would you say that like the um, organic, natural, local, free range, slow food, uh, artisan, all that sort of stuff is sort of the, the new keeping up with the Joneses sort of? Yeah, I think so. And um, I think though that, that, um, that, that little, little um, arc there is, is a very good illustration of it. I remember 10 years ago, 12 years ago when I was a graduate student, um, you know, I knew a handful of people who, who received uh, boxes of organic produce once a week, right? Um, and everyone thought they were just like these crazy hippies. And, uh, you know, they'd kind of like cook like and the, the, the vegetables would come. They'd get these boxes of vegetables full of like mangled tomatoes and like misshapen carrots and all this stuff, right? And they'd kind of pretend that they really liked it, even though it was, it was bad produce. Um, and then it was like 2000, it was only about five or six years later, 2005, 2006, that Walmart announced that they would uh, be carrying a full suite of organic produce um, at only a 10% markup over, uh, you know, the, 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 the regular conventional produce. And um, you would think that that would have made everybody extremely happy, everybody at least who sort of thinks that organic is, is sort of really good for you and good for the environment and so on. Um, but instead, I remember the New York Times wrote this, this, this column uh, or this editorial where they said, well, you know, Walmart getting in the organic business might seem good, but it kind of violates the underlying spirit of organic, which is that it's small scale, it's local, and so on. And it was right around that time that Walmart started selling organic that the local movement became, uh, you know, sort of the, the one-up uh, on, on organic. Uh, you had the 100-mile diet, uh, and you had various forms of uh, the locavore movements that sprung up. And then, you know, that kind of, you know, ran its course for two or three years, and people realized that, you know, you know, just anyone can buy local. All you need is a bit more money, but not everyone can get artisanal. And so the artisanal movement came up. 
and uh, in the last year or so, you know, you can't uh, you can't you know go anywhere without uh, you know running into something artisanal to the point where it's become you know an, an absurd marketing campaign. I mean, Starbucks sells artisanal breakfast sandwiches now, and I think uh, Tostitos is selling artisanal Doritos. You know, this kind of you know it's becoming almost comical. But you can see what's going on, and what's important to realize is that each step from organic to local to artisanal um, is. Uh, an advance in the ratchet of exclusivity. Uh, if, our, if organic was exclusive simply because it was expensive, local became exclusive because it was both ex- expensive and uh, highly restricted to sp- supply. And then artisanal ha- is restricted and exclusive in the sense that um, it takes time, it takes labor, uh, and it takes, uh, it takes a great deal of social connections to find the, the, the true artisans who are out there. And so, again, I think that uh, what you're getting at is, or what you see in this is, as well-meaning as it might be, you're seeing a disguised form of, of uh, status, status competition. I love that. So once you see it, you see it everywhere. Have you, have you noticed um, yourself that there is sort of a, a trend in mocking voices? Uh, I've noticed um, things like Portlandia and stuff white people like. Uh, yeah. Um, people have, uh, the Onion often, they've, there's a new... Um, a a open uh, field of being able to mock this new uh, form of consumption and this new way of uh, saying, hey, look, I've got something more authentic than you've got. Right. It's funny. Uh, my the, the Authenticity Oaks came out in 2010. I've been writing it for a few years, and it came out about a week after it came out, Portlandia launched, and I thought, oh, my God, I'm so, I'm so mad, right, because I didn't even have a mention of it. Um, and the other thing a lot of people mentioned when I was uh, sort of touring the book when it first came out was they'd say, you know, this is basically the philosophy behind the website and the book stuff white people like. And I thought, you know, that's exactly right. You know, authenticity is basically something white people like. Um, well, it's just a, you know, it's it's in the zeitgeist, and I think you you correctly have, uh, you know, pinpointed what is the source, what is the root of all this, and I think that there are a lot of people who are also noticing it as well. But um, you guys, uh, both with the Rebel Cell and, and your latest book, have really um, have really brought it brought up. Okay, well, here is the arc. Here is how we got where we're at today. Yeah, and I think that's what I tried to do was sort of give some uh, sort of uh, basically a philosophical framework to understand what exactly is going on, um, and uh, because and because I think once you have that framework, you can sort of identify the various tricks that people are 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 are, are using to sort of. Um, uh, you know, engage in, in disguised forms of status seeking and also see what's exactly is wrong with it. Like, for instance, there was a, um, a, a case that came out, I think it was about a year ago, I read uh, in the New York Times about how um, the, the, the demand for, orga- or sorry, for local meat products in sort of northeastern United States had become so, uh, so, so, so large that uh, it was outstripping the ability of local producers to, to generate the, the meat that was, that was desired. And so they were actually shipping uh, lamb and pork and beef from uh, Connecticut and New Hampshire and various places. They were shipping it two or 300 miles away to abattoirs. Uh, you know, slaughtering the beef and the pork and the lamb and sending it back and then selling it as locally raised. And it was because there just simply weren't enough abattoirs uh, to to, um, cope with the demand. And you might think to yourself, well, that's kind of crazy, right? I mean, uh, that kind of violates the entire rationale of of local, right? To like ship the beef off, have it slaughtered and ship it back. Um, But then you realize that 
you know, the, the demand for local, uh, you know, might be really high, the demand for local beef, but the demand for the local abattoir is extremely low. For anyone who's ever lived near an abattoir, you can sort of see, you know, you understand what the problem is. They're loud, they stink, and, and they're, they're actually kind of creepy. Um, I remember reading uh, not, not too long ago about how in Greenpoint in Brooklyn, a bunch of hipsters have sort of been colonizing right from Williamsburg and outward into Greenpoint. And uh, a whole bunch of them had moved in next door to uh, a, chicken, uh, a chicken abattoir, if that's the name for it. And uh, everyone couldn't believe it because they sit there and they, they're like, I'm lying in bed like, and here's the screaming of the chickens, right? <laughs> and it's like, well, yeah, that's what it means to live, like, that, that's what a local economy is, right? That's, that's the reality of it. And uh, I think, you know, it's not nearly as pristine and, and sort of romantic as a lot of us like to think. Yeah, I wonder where the ceiling or where the, 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 the border of this uh, thinking is going to be. I mean, how far, how far back do you go? I mean, do, do you want to have people saw off your leg and while you, with a, after a swig of whiskey? I mean, to how, how, <laughs> how far, I mean, do you want to, uh, uh, have a baby, you know, in a log cabin? I mean, what do you want to do? How, how authentic do you need to be? And what, right. um, I, I want to sort of move over into, um, this other idea, the other big idea that, that you present. Um, and I know personally I can say that I've had my own, uh, epiphanies thanks to what you guys work. Um, I love movies. I remember uh, a period of time in my life when fight club and American beauty and then the matrix and all these movies were coming out and they, they hit that revelatory sweet spot that I think every generation goes through where people want to, um, they want to rebel. The youth culture wants to rebel and, uh, each, each youth culture gets its own counterculture movement. And, you guys write a lot about how this is uh, a very old idea going back to Plato in his cave and that um, the idea that you can counter the mainstream culture and sort of wake up from the dream. And you talk about how that's really a faulty premise. Could you talk a little bit about that? Uh, yeah. I mean, there's, there's this idea that uh, we live in uh, a world of illusion. Um, that uh, effectively everything is um, in one sense everything we see all the, all the all the you know just everything around us right is in some sense uh, unreal and then what we need to do is find the underlying reality the underlying truth uh, of what's going on and um, one of the things uh, that, that sort of sort of struck Joe and I, when we were writing the Rebel Cell, is that you can you can interpret um, virtually uh, not virtually every, but a, a great amount of of pop culture, uh, especially film, as basically um, countercultural parables, uh, serving from Pink Floyd's uh, you know album The Wall to to Fight Club to to The Matrix to you know movies like The Beach and so on. They are all variations on this common theme that. Uh, Society is uh, a uh, a land of, of of false falseness and illusion, and that what you need to do is is in somehow uh, prick the prick the bubble uh, and, and burst it and, and show everyone the truth that, that sort of underlies all this. And so one of the one of the useful things about using pop cultural uh, examples like this is is that there once you sort of are able to decode what's going on you can sort of say oh i can see the underlying politics of this so i remember talking to a friend and saying we came out of the matrix i said oh, that was a good movie but i hated the politics of it he goes what do you mean the politics of it and i sort of explained well it's a metaphor for you know mass society he said oh yeah it's really obnoxious right <laughs> and so we went from there so um so yeah i mean pop culture tends to be an extremely useful device for for uh for both articulating and sort of expanding on on uh, on the argument. Um, 
and I think that people would be shocked, uh, especially if you are um, if you're in the middle of this phase in your life, or you are in fact a hipster. You would be um, uh, surprised to hear that you guys. One of your uh, arguments, if I'm reading it correctly, is that. Um, the counterculture is a primary force that drives capitalism. So could you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, well, um, so, so, so if you start with the assumption behind a lot of countercultural values, the idea is that um, it's, it's a reaction against uh, capitalism, right? That, that by engaging in various forms of nonconformist behavior uh, or nonconformist consumption, uh, you know, uh, everything from uh, listening to underground rock bands to buying organic produce, you're in some sense undermining the, the, the capitalist machine. And the only reason that has any serious credibility is that it assumes that um, a number of things about capitalism. It assumes, to begin with, that what it really needs is that it actually is a machine, that it requires uh, conformity uh, of taste, conformity of desire, and conformity of, of ability amongst, amongst the masses. And uh, the, the, the function of society is to create out of all of these, you know, individuals. There's that line, I think, from Rousseau, right? Uh, or, you know, that line, um, everyone is born unique but is but dies a copy. I can't remember who said that, right? You sort of read that all the time, right? But that's sort of like the idea behind the critique of mass society, that we're all born these individuals and society creates us into these, 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 these templated widgets that we just plug into the economy and plug into the consumer aspect of it. And uh, you can see that, how that plays out. Like Pink Floyd, The Wall is a classic example, right? Right, that shows the education system literally turning kids into sausages, right? Um, and the problem with that is that it assumes that capitalism relies on conformity, uh, and it simply doesn't. Uh, in fact, what capitalism relies on is just simply uh, – just the opposite. That is, it relies on the constant turnover, the constant churn of, of, of desires amongst consumers. And so if you look at what is uh, rebellion, it's nothing more than a form of status seeking. You can see that the desire to be different from everybody else, the idea that you should have, you know, listen to a different band, wear different shoes, uh, go on different trips and so on, that generates the cycles of uh, coolness, popularity and then obsolescence that we call consumer society. And so you can see this sort of leapfrogging effect in everything from, uh, you know, the consumption of music where everyone always says, well, you know, I liked you two when they were, you know, when they, they played in clubs or I liked this <laughs> band before I knew them, right, to um, travel uh, spots where, you know, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, when I was an undergrad, everyone sort of went to Bangkok, right? But now nobody goes to Bangkok. Why? Because Bangkok's just overrun with tourists. Where does everybody go now? Uh, they go to, uh, you know, Bhutan, if you can get in, they go to, you know, all kinds of crazy places. And so you get this constant leapfrogging effect in virtually every aspect of the culture. And that's, that's consumerism. That's what drives capitalism is this constant uh, development, searching out of new markets and new, and, uh, new enterprises. So, uh, and the way I've explained this to people is that it's, it, it's sort of like a pump where, you know, the people you, whenever something rises up to what you would call the mainstream, a, a large number of people will, will dive back down to try to find something that's not mainstream, but that act of grabbing it pulls it up into the mainstream. And so it's just this perfect engine of, uh, of, uh, driving, uh, cons consumption. Yeah, that's right. I mean, cool, cool hunters, the people who are always sort of saying, you know, I don't, I don't wear what you wear. I don't, uh, you know, I don't, I don't eat what you eat. And I don't listen to you, what you listen to. They're the ones who are the sort of the, the shock troops of modern capitalism. 
<laughs> oh man. Uh, here's before we, uh, get uh run out of time i really wanted to hear you uh, just give me your definition of what is a hipster <laughs> what is a hipster um that's you know that's a funny question because i talk about it all the time now and i'm kind of obsessed with them um but uh you know what one is has become uh, extremely difficult to uh, to say i mean this, this, in the most straightforward sense hipsters are just uh the modern day uh, bohemians the modern day cool kids the modern day alternative crowd and so on um but what is different about the sort of contemporary hipster movement, um, as it differs from, uh, say, the anti-globalization movement of a decade ago, or the punk movement of the late 70s and 80s, or the hippies, is how it has a decidedly apolitical bent to it. And I think this is what's really new about contemporary hipsterdom. That is, the hippies had a clear political agenda. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll would take down the system. The punks had this idea that, uh, you know, no future now and, uh, you know, DIY and all that kind of stuff, right? And the anti-globalization movement was very directly directed, sorry, very explicitly directed against um, resisting the growth of global capitalism. And then 10 years later, what you have is this movement of people sort of ground zeroed in in Brooklyn, but pretty much franchised across North America and even into Europe. I mean, if you go to Brooklyn and you go to the Plateau in Montreal, or you go to Wicker Park in Chicago, or you go to various parts of Copenhagen where I was recently, everybody looks exactly the same. Right. There really is just simply one hipsterdom. And it's this sort of free play of nostalgia and retro uh, steampunkish kind of thing where people have mustaches and drive fixies. Right. You know, it's right. you know, you can sort of you know, portray it all. And, and what's really interesting about it and kind of appealing in a lot of ways is how apolitical it is. They seem to have um, simply grown up. There's this sort of whole cohort that has grown up that never imagined that behaving in a sort of weird way. Uh, or playing sort of rip mix burn with the culture, you know, taking one element from, you know, the 1950s, another one from the 1780s, another one from the 2050s, right? And mixing it up into this big sort of pop culture melange. It never really occurred to them that this would have any sort of political import. And so, so hipsterdom just is, I think, the, um, the lifestyle equivalent of, you know, uh, rip mix burn uh, culture. And... I, I guess what um, what's sort of neat about it is is the extent to which not only is it is it apolitical, but um, you've got you've got these things like you know the mumblecore TV, uh, mumblecore uh, film movement, and so on. I mean, it, it has this sort of underlying sweetness to it that I, that I find really appealing. Yeah, there's a, it's weird because I, uh, there are people who are like, it's no big deal; these people are just having fun. I mean, there but there's also the really like knee jerk hatred of uh, hipsterdom as well. I think that. I think it comes from the the conspicuous consumption side of hipsterdom. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I, w- I wouldn't want to overplay how much I kind of like it, right? I mean, it's but I, uh, what I like about it is the apolitical side of it. But you're right. I mean, um, the, the hatred of it partly comes from the conspicuous consumption side of it, but also just because it's so ubiquitous now. I mean, there was a time, even 10 years ago, before the, the full explosion of social media, when if you wanted to see what the hipsters were up to, you had to actually go somewhere, right, and see it. And now it's just, you can't, you can't turn on Twitter or turn on a blog or whatever and, and, and without, without having it sort of thrown in your face. Do you think that um, with the advent uh, and more and more people join up in social media and just in, just in, uh, in uh, communi- the, the new wave of communication technologies, as, as more grandmas and mothers and everything join up, uh, are there still going to be pockets of things that uh, people seek out 
and say this is not mainstream and that rises up or will just everything now be enveloped in the mainstream culture? I think it's a, good, it's a good question. I mean, there is, to a certain extent, what we have is just what I think, I can't remember who said it, they called it the hip stream, right? There is no mainstream versus alternative anymore. That has been totally blown up. Um, but what you are seeing are various uh, attempts at recreating the old pockets of independent culture that were, I mean, it used to be that you have these pockets that, that sort of stayed independent just simply because it took a long time for information to sort of travel, right? There was, there was a time when London was different from New York simply because it took a long time to go from London to New York, right? It would take it could take years. Uh, now, after MTV came and the internet and so on, everyone knows what's going on everywhere at the same time. But at the same time, you're seeing various attempts at creating uh, little colonies or even just simply virtual colonies uh, or even just moments of, of isolation. And I, I talk about one of them in, in the Authenticity Hoax, which, which I kind of like, which is um, about this, this guy in Brooklyn who, who won, entered a contest to win a, a Sufjan Stevens song. Um, and he, he, he won the, the right to the song, right? Steven just gave him the song. Huh. Uh, and uh, the, everyone kind of expected, all the Sujan Stevens fans just sort of expected him to put the song online and sort of say, here's this free song that, that I won, right? But instead what he did was he said, okay, if you want to listen to this song, you have to beat a path to my apartment in Brooklyn, and uh, I will put headphones on you and sit you down in front of my stereo and play you the song. <laughs> And uh, you you will hear it once, and then at the end of it, his like girlfriend gives the guy like whoever comes to listen to the song, they give them like a bag of cookies and send them on their way. And they've heard the song once; it's the only time they'll ever hear it. And I, I thought this was really remarkable because what this guy has deliberately tried to do is recreate what music was like before recording, right? That is, you heard a song, maybe some troubadour came through town, you would hear it, and you would never hear it again. And I think on the one hand, this is kind of remarkable and a very deliberate attempt at resisting the, uh, you know, the instantly uh, commodifying and cliching effects of, of, of digital media. Um, but the flip side of it is, of course, realizing that um, this is also a disguised form or a deliberate form of, of, of manufactured ex exclusivity. Not everyone can afford to sort of travel to Brooklyn to hear this song, right? Mm -hmm. And so, so what, it, what it sort of underlies is sort of the, 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 the dual nature of all of this kind of stuff, that if you want to recreate the world before, um, before digital media, you know, there, there's, there was always a fundamentally anti-democratic aspect to it. Right. Hmm. And, and you sort of need to accept that, those trade-offs. Okay. Um, man, I could talk to you for seven hours. Uh, this is uh, – let me, let me throw one last question to you because I think a lot of people um, – I think that just part of being a modern person is that you're going to go through a phase where you're going to get uncomfortable with things like reality television and, and uh, Walmart everywhere and the McDonaldization of the world. What would you say to a person who is feeling that angst and that malaise and that anger about mass consumer culture? What should they be doing? Uh, man, those are great questions because, you know – you, you don't want to. I, I would never want to say that, that the the motivations that people have for basically authenticity seeking are uh, are un, um, uh, un, un, not, not well motivated. That is to say, you know, I feel it, right? I have a BlackBerry that I'm basically tethered to all the time, for instance, and I get tired of you know Twitter. I get tired of seeing the same things, the same crazy crap uh, over and over again. Um, and, you know, I do feel somewhat alienated by aspects of the modern world. 
Um, I, w- I would say two things. One is that um, you can always uh, pull, pull yourself back from the alienation and pull yourself back from the nostalgia by simply reminding yourself that uh, nostalgia in particular is always nostalgia for the present. That is, if you start to think, oh, things were better in the 80s before the Internet, or things were better in the 50s before mass, mass technology, things were better in the 20s before electricity, if you start to think that way, right, what you need to realize is that what you're nostalgia for is actually uh, not the past, but what you're doing is simply uh, expressing your own present disquiet, your present unhappiness. That's why there's that line about nostalgia being nostalgic for the present. What you are is just simply nostalgic for a time when you're actually happy. Uh, And then you can think about realizing that this past to to which you're sort of um, thinking back never really existed. That is, there never really was this golden age. Uh, And you can sort of remind yourself that in the 1920s, there was no polio vaccine, right? In the 1950s, there was no, you know, modern dentistry. You can just sort of list all the various things that have really sort of made our world a better place, right? Mm -hmm. And say, yeah, the world has a lot of bad things going, a lot of bad things, but also has a lot of things going for it. You know, uh, we live longer than ever and, you know, food is cheap and, you know, uh, maternal death is scarce and, you know, list all the various things. Um, That's one thing, right? Realize that, you know, as much as we might have lost, we've also gained. The other is that um, there's nothing wrong with authenticity seeking uh, in the way I've sort of been talking about it. In the same way, there's really nothing wrong with cool hunting as long as you recognize what it is you're doing. And once you recognize that, you know, cool hunting is just simply a desire to be the most knowledgeable guy about music, for instance, on your block, or the most knowledgeable guy about sneakers, uh, that authenticity seeking is just about being the kind of person who, at a certain point in their life, wants to go on an eco trip to Bhutan, or wants to canoe down a river in the Northwest Territories, or something like that. And once you realize that, I think you can sort of pick your spots. And instead of trying to be authentic all the way through your life, trying to pick your spots, pick your pond, pick the various ways in which you can, uh, can actually sort of succeed, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. And, and so, uh, you know, just for instance, you know, take a vacation and don't take a vacation to somewhere where there's the Internet. Um, you know, those, those kind of like basic things you can do to unplug every now and then uh, while realizing that you would never want to unplug permanently, that at some point you're going to want to come back because for better or for worse, the modern world has, has a lot to offer it. <laughs> uh, it's, um, it's been a, such a pleasure talking with you. Um, if people wanted to keep up with what you're doing and see what you're going to come out with next, how could they do that? Uh, lots, uh, various ways. Um, I'm on Twitter, uh, at J Andrew Potter is my Twitter handle. Um, and I also have a blog, uh, which is, uh, uh, uh what is it? It's authenticityhoax.squarespace.com. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also am the managing editor of the Ottawa Citizen, a newspaper in, uh, in Ottawa, Canada. And, uh, I write a regular column for the, uh, for the Ottawa Citizen as well. So if you go to ottawacitizen.com, you can find me on there every now and then. Well, thank you so much for uh, for coming on here, and uh, I just want to say that I'm a huge fan, and uh, I really appreciate it. Oh, I love this. it was totally enjoyable. Thank you so much. Okay, and now it's time for cookies. On each episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast, I eat a cookie baked from a recipe sent in by a listener or reader while I read a bit of science news or a study related to self-delusion. And you can send those recipes to david at youarenotsosmart.com. And if I eat your cookie on the air, you get a signed copy of the You Are Not So Smart book, which, by the way, is now available in the UK. 
and uh, a whole bunch of other countries, over 12 languages in all, which is mind-blowing to me. Um, I post pictures of the cookie at youarenotsosmart.com, and I put the recipe up over at the You Are Not So Smart Pinterest page. This week, the cookie comes from Mike Buswell, who writes that I am a vegan and I can't remember ever eating a better cookie in my life, pre or post veganism. So here's the recipe for Chewbacca's chocolate chip cookies. They're vegan and they're spectacular. Okay, so uh, I have never had a vegan cookie either. And here are the ingredients. Um, there's flaxseed, soy milk, all-purpose flour, cocoa powder, baking soda, salt, canola oil, sugar, vanilla, and chocolate chips. And uh, I'll put the entire recipe up, like I said, over at the Pinterest page. So let's give this thing a shot. And let me tell you, it's beautiful. And uh, don't worry, I'm not going to chew this uh, right into the microphone. Uh, that would be gross for some people. Okay, so here we go. Uh, first of all, this thing is so pretty. It's uh, It looks like uh, it's just dark, dark chocolate everything all over this thing. It's just a, a pie. You know there's chocolate in this. You would see this cookie... And you would not ask yourself, hey, is that oatmeal? Is that peanut? No, you, you know this is, uh, this is chocolate. So here I go. Going away from the microphone. Oh, yeah. Riding on a river of nothing but chocolate. Oh, oh man. Okay. Have you ever thought that maybe... Um, if you were going for pure decadence... Okay, <laughs> not decadence, uh, post-apocalyptic insanity. Sorry, if you were going, you know how like maybe um, it's like the road and you're going from house to house uh, scavenging for maybe canned goods or something that was left behind by the scavengers. And say you found a uh, completely intact bottle of chocolate syrup and you decided, hey, let's go for it. Maybe this is ruined. And you uh, just... Turn it up and do the whole thing in your mouth. Or maybe you've done this after a night of drinking. I don't know. Um, but I'm imagining that it's sort of like what's happening to me right now. I'm imagining that this is the cookie equivalent of pouring uh, chocolate syrup for making uh, chocolate milk just into your mouth, letting your mouth fill up and just going. Uh, one more one more bite here. Yeah, you're right, Mike. This is good stuff. Um, vegan. Crazy. Okay. So, uh, I could go vegan for this. Totally. In fact, <clears throat> try not to be gross, people. Um, in fact, it's so good that it's making my southern accent just, uh, like, be unrepressed. It's yanking it out. And the other thing about this cookie is it's kind of like an M&M, except instead of a candy shell on the outside and chocolate on the inside, it's a cookie on the outside. But on the inside, it's a brownie. Because it really has that brownie texture on the inside, but it has it's a crunchy, awesome cookie on the outside. Great stuff. Oh, my goodness. Mm. It's going to be hard to top this, people. I'm going to see what you can give us. So now that I have this cookie coursing through my veins, I'm going to use that power, that sugar high, to prove that there is no such thing as a sugar high. Or at least uh, read some information here that lends um, evidence toward the idea that maybe there is no such thing. The reason I say that is because there's a study detailed over at mindthesciencegap.org, which I found through Boing Boing. And on that site, Jillian Maiman writes about research done in 1996 in a study called Hyperactivity is Candy Causal, published in Critical Reviews in Food Science and Nutrition 
The authors are D.A. Crummel, F.H. Seligson, and H.A. Guthrie. And she writes about how her and her parent group, teachers, educators, grandparents, other parents, there's a commonly held belief that if you give a kid sugar, they get hyper. And you are always told, don't give your kid sugar before bedtime, you're going to go crazy. And so she had always avoided it. But she was skeptical because she had noticed that after she gave her children Oreos and they had an Oreo binge, they tended not to get hyper in the way that everyone said they would. So this led her to find this wonderful study in which children are given either sugar or artificial sweetener, and then parents observe those children and tell scientists whether or not they believe their children are being hyperactive or not. But it's a double-blind study. Neither the scientists nor the mothers know who gets sugar and who gets artificial sweetener. But the parents believe they know because the scientists tell them, hey, your kid got sugar, or hey, your kid got artificial sweetener. But in reality, it's random. Half the children get it, half them don't. And the scientists don't know who received it, and neither do the parents. So the kids are playing around, and if they got sugar or if they got artificial sweetener, it doesn't matter. If the mother is told that a child got sugar, they'll say my kid was being hyperactive. But if they were told that their kid did not get sugar, whether or not they actually got it, they'll say my kid is not being hyper. So it turns out it doesn't matter if the kid gets sugar or not. It just matters what the parent is told. And if the mother believes that their child ate sugar, they will believe that their child is being hyper. They will see that behavior and that's how they will label it because they come into the situation with a, a preconceived notion, with a belief. And they use that belief to change the nature of what, of their reality, to change what they're seeing, to interpret it. Their expectation uh, results in a interpretation of reality. They expect to see it. And so they do. And the reason this happens, this happens in all sorts of things in life, is because of pattern recognition. You seek a cause to an effect. Uh, you know that there should be a correlation whenever there are uh, things happening to your environment. For instance, if you eat a meal at a restaurant you've never been to and then you get really, really sick, you'll say, well, I'm never going back, th back there again. Blech. But it might not be the restaurant's food that got you sick. You don't know. So you just err on the side of caution. And that's a good strategy that keeps you alive, that keeps you from eating the horrible berries, right? Because the first time you do it you and you don't die, or if you see somebody else die, you won't do it again. Just because you wore Crocs for the first time one day and then a tornado ripped through town, that doesn't mean the Crocs angered the wind god Zephyrus who called forth a tornado to destroy your local movie theater. And uh, it's true in this scenario as well. Just because you gave your kids sugar and then they smashed through a glass table on a crown of peanut butter and kitty litter does not mean the sugar had anything to do with it. And the craziest thing about this study is that the children would say that they were hyperactive, even though they weren't, if they were told that the sugar could make them hyper. And um, Jillian writes in her article this wonderful sentence, we not only create our own reality, we create our children's. 
That's the end of episode five. The intro music is by Caravan Palace. The name of the song is Clash. All of the music beds in this episode come from Blackguard SMG. And if you buy something from Blackguard SMG, you get to separate the tracks into all of their component parts and build whatever you want out of it. They're really cool people. I highly recommend them. You can get Andrew Potter's book on Amazon. And you can find links to everything that I've talked about today at youarenotsosmart.com. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.